interested in, and it's something that I think we need to respond to, and it's something, a conversation that we need to be ready for, because undoubtedly, you're getting hit by this. Uh, Many of you in the workplace, you're having uh, trainings and such uh, to deal with uh, all sorts of diversity training and uh, LGBTQ types of issues, Uh, so we want to talk a little bit about that. Um, Also, we're getting pummeled with some of this stuff as far as an ideology coming from movies and advertising. There's been a few little blow-ups of the last uh, few weeks, actually, um, as it relates to sports, um, with the Riley Gaines situation with Leah Thomas. We'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, Bud, uh, Budweiser, had a little issue with their trans campaign that they tried, and uh, that didn't go over well, and they've pulled back on that now, and so it's interesting to see some of the cultural backlash that's now coming um, as a result of that, so we will get into some of that um, as well. One of the things that I want to say here at the outset is I really want us as Christians to strike the right tone when we have this conversation. Uh, There's a certain temptation when we have people that disagree with us and maybe have uh, sort of come from a a very different worldview. Um, We'll just say it that way and a very different starting point. When you come from a very different starting point, you're going to end up in a very different place as far as your conclusions. And so it might be a temptation for you or for me to mock people that come come down on a different place. Um, I don't want that to be the tone of what's going on in here. We're going to say some things and we're going to say it with conviction and we're going to stand by what we believe the Bible teaches, but I don't want that to come across in a condescending way. Uh, We're not here to mock people. We're not here to poke fun. We're not here for laughs. Uh, That's not what we're doing in this session, and there will be some time for interaction. I just want us to keep that in mind. Uh, What we want to do is we want to think rightly about what God's Word says, and we want to let the Scripture inform us on these topics that if all of a sudden, we say all of a sudden, I'm going to try to show that it wasn't all of a sudden. I'm going to sh- try to show that this has actually been building for quite a while, uh, this, this whole story and gender ideology. It's, it has been building up for, for a minute. Um, so we're going we're gonna to try to demonstrate that a little bit this morning. So that's the tone we're going to try to strike, and that's what we're going to try to do over the next few weeks. Let me open our time in a word of prayer and ask the Lord to help us to do just that. Lord, as we come to this topic of gender and sexuality, we recognize that this has become somewhat of a battleground and really a litmus test of some sorts um, in many circles of orthodoxy, and it's become a litmus test even in our society for people who would put Christians and label us as being those on the wrong side of history, of practicing some sort of injustice, for practicing some sort of hate because we refuse to recognize the validity and the claims of what some people have to say. So, Lord, we recognize this is very contentious, and we recognize also that this can be very difficult for us as believers to speak truth in love, but that's exactly what we want to do. We do want to speak the truth, and we want to do it with love. To speak truth in love doesn't mean that we don't sometimes disagree. It doesn't mean that we can't tell someone that they're wrong according to your word. What it does mean is that we shouldn't do so with a sense of arrogance, with a sense of haughtiness, and so we pray that you would help us uh, to do that as we walk through these things. We pray in the name of Christ, amen. All right, so let me give you an overview of what we plan to do over the next few weeks. Today we're going to look at this idea of more than a metaphor, and we're going to talk specifically about marriage and how marriage relates to the bride of Christ and how marriage is really integral to the storyline of the scripture. We'll get into that, and we're going to deal with the question, why can't Christians just get over it? We've lost this battle, right? Um, Why are all you bigots so wound up about this issue of 
gender and sexuality. Can't people just do what they want to do and you just mind your own business? That's what we're told. And so I want to, I want to get into that a little bit and talk about marriage, that blessed arrangement, the dream within a dream, and love, true love. All right, we'll move on from that. So marriage is important, uh, very significant. If you didn't get that reference, you're probably under the age of, what, 15-ish? What are we going to do? So today, what I want to do is we're going to talk about more than a metaphor, and we'll take this in three parts, being human, being gendered, being married. And for each one of these, what I want to do is say, what does the culture say about these things? What does the culture say about being human, being gendered, being married? And then what does the Bible say? So it'll be a study and comparison. Uh, culture says, Bible says. That's how we'll do it. Next week, I want to, we've titled it, Not My Own. And the sub of that would be, why does God care what I do with my body? Why are you, why are you interfering? Why does God even care what you do with your body? And we'll deal with that. I want to talk about the concept of sin and shame. And I'm so tempted to get into this today because it's something I love talking about, but just this sense of morality, uh, sense of sin and shame. How do we get this sense of morality? And it's something that many apologists have pointed out. It's the moral argument for the existence of God, which C.S. Lewis kind of made famous. So how do we get this sense of sin and shame? People that say there is no sin today. I would argue that there's definitely a moral sense to the universe still today. If you don't believe that, I'll give you a list of phrases, and I want you to just go open a social media account and post them and see if we have a sense of morality left in our culture. The question is not, are we moral creatures? The question is, what's the basis of morality and what's driving that morality? And how do we get to the bottom of that? So we'll deal with that a little bit next week, and then we'll relate to how does that deal with what we do with our bodies, issues like pornography, It's a victimless crime, right? So why does it even matter? We'll get into that next week. And then we'll also deal with this issue of attraction, specifically same-sex attraction and attraction uh, to the the opposite sex um, as well. Uh, And we'll, we'll talk about how do we make sense of that. So big picture after that. Um, on May 21st, we're going to talk about gender in the next gen. Uh, what, what happens in the next generation? Um, what's the next iteration? Can we make some educated guesses on this? And then also, this will have a focus somewhat on parents, teens, but I don't want to exclude anyone here. I think you should still be here, even if you're not in that category. Grandparenting, how do you grandparent in a generation that has really a different sort of basis, a different sort of system? How do you grandparent well? Um, Aunts and uncles, how do you input into the lives of the younger ones? And then I have no illusions that we're actually going to cover all of that. So May 28th, we're going to hold that spot for a moment and just see exactly what we want to come back and clean up a little bit from previous weeks. Um, I do enjoy an interactive uh, format and style. This will be a little bit information heavy, but I I do um, appreciate and welcome uh, feedback and comments as we move along. All right, so that's a big picture over the next few weeks. That's the plan. Um, I'll be recommending resources along the way. On the back table, we have a number of resources that are very, very helpful. There's two this morning that I'll talk about specifically, and I'll probably have a couple of different ones that I'll talk about um, as we move along. Uh, One, this is God and the Transgender Debate. It's by Andrew Walker. Uh, Andrew Walker is at Southern Seminary, and I think he's written a really helpful kind of overview. If you're just looking for 
a single book that kind of helps you get your arms around the whole transgender ideology and where they're coming from, how should Christians respond. I would recommend that one. Another book, uh, Love Thy Body uh, by Nancy Piercy. I'll talk a little bit about Nancy Piercy. I think she's written an excellent book. It's more, it's more uh, inclusive than Andrew Walker's book. Um, it, it covers a little bit more of the, the term is anthropology in general, the study of humanity, what it means to be human. And so it's a little bit more uh, general book. So a few things as we get started. We need to define some terms that we'll be talking about. I'll be using these throughout. And it's just important to make sure that we're all using the same dictionary here as we talk about some of these things. One, the term sex. In this context, we're going to be talking mostly about what we are biologically. So you were born with XX or XY chromosomes. XX, you are female. XY, you are male, biologically speaking. This is your biological composition. And this also, of course, speaks to the reproductive parts that you are born with. In future weeks, we'll get into this idea of intersex, those who are born with non-distinct male or female genitalia. We will talk a little bit about that. It's extremely rare, but it is a condition that's worth consideration because that's one of the arguments that gets thrown back is, well, what about these people? Gender can't be tied to biology because you have these certain people. And my quick snippet on that right now is you have abnormalities that are within gender, more than you have people who are completely removed from any type of gendering, okay? So we'll talk a little bit more about that and get into a little bit of science class on some of that um, later on. Next, we will talk about gender. We'll use the term gender. I think for many of us in the world that we grew up in and still the way I think probably most of you think, you don't separate these terms. Um, Sex and gender are the same thing. Um, Your biological sex is your gender. Your gender is your biological sex. But that is not used in this way now. And if you find yourself completely confused by this whole conversation, this is why. And and I want to try to put my finger on that. And as I was thinking about how do we how do we think through this and how do we show, how do we come to an understanding of why people are in different places on this? So I just want you to imagine that you grew up on an island. This island is called Genderland, all right? It's an island of Genderland. And on this island, you're taught from the earliest, earliest days that gender is something that you define. It's completely user-defined. And that's our next term, gender identity, what you feel like you are as far as maleness or femaleness. You grew up in this island and you're raised by, let's say, a set of parents that are a same-sex couple. And you're told that you can be either one. You can, you can be male. You can be female. You can be one one day. You can be the other the next day. You can change as you'd like. It's completely fluid, all right, completely fluid. It's a, it's a complete, it's not binary, um, it's completely fluid. Now just imagine that you grew up in that culture and world and you're being told that your whole entire life. Now you grow up and you're 14, 15, 16 years old and you start to go through puberty and changes start to happen in your body. Your ideas about what's happening to you or not happening to you as you watch other friends are shaped by the world that you grew up in. So if you were to ask that kid about these ideas about gender, it would make complete sense to them, right? That your gender is separated from your, 
from your biology. And so although there is something deeply embedded in, the hum- in human consciousness, and I would say it's part of the DNA that God has coded us with, there's something deeply embedded. There's also a sense in which your worldview is shaped by the context that you live in. So let's leave genderland for a moment, and you come back to the United States of America, and I thought about picking on particular cities, but I don't want to do that because it would probably feed the thing I don't want to feed um, as far as uh, you know, stereotypes and, and such. But just imagine that you're growing up in a culture and a place that is feeding this idea of biological sex and gender are completely different things. So what are you even talking about? And that's what we're dealing with now. You've got a generation that's growing up with that ideology. And so some of us may be tempted to say, that's crazy, and it might be from your vantage point, from their vantage point, you're just a closed-minded bigot that don't, you just don't understand. And so I would say it's not crazy. It's just a very different worldview, all right? So that's important. That's important as we walk through this. Okay, so sex then is biologically driven. Gender, and this is from, I pulled this from Andrew Walker's book, and he's pulling it from a, a psychology manual. Attitudes, feelings, and behaviors a culture associates with biological sex. So that's gender, as opposed to gender identity, which is a person's self-perception of whether they are male or female, masculine or feminine. So we have to recognize at the outset here that parts of gender, or at least gender expression, are culturally defined, right? If I came in this morning and I was wearing a purple sequin skirt, most of you would be very concerned. You would think that that's, that's abnormal. That's not typical behavior for our pastor. He basically wears solid colors because he has no sense of fashion, and that's just the safest thing to do. Like, that's, that's, not, that's not right. But if you traveled overseas somewhere, and you saw someone in a, you know, that's wearing a kilt, let's say, There's nothing not masculine about that. So what's the difference? It's basically the same thing, right? Um, What defines one as this is a masculine, manly kind of thing to wear, you know, William Wallace Braveheart kind of thing. You know, nobody was picking on him for not being a man, right? What makes that masculine versus if William Wallace and Braveheart had shown up, you know, wearing a wearing a long, you know, flowy purple skirt? Um, It wouldn't have the same. So what defines that? And so gender expression is somewhat culturally defined. And I think we all know that and we all recognize that. And so what, what I'm forcing us to do is, is to think a little bit more deeply about what is gender then and what is gender expression? All right? Cisgender then, this is when a person's gender identity and biological sex match. Um, it's when you're not experiencing the next thing, which is called dysphoria. So most I think in here, would identify themselves as cisgender. You've probably never needed or known a term to identify that, but that's how, in the literature, that's how it's going to get talked about today. Gender dysphoria, then, is the experience of distress, anguish, and conflict from feeling your gender and biology do not match. And gender dysphoria, strictly defined in speaking here, gender dysphoria is not the same as your gender and your biology don't match, all right? It's the feeling of the anguish and stress associated with that. There are some trans people, and we'll get trans in just a moment here. There are some trans people who say, I feel no tension at all. I'm a woman that was born biologically a male. I express myself now as a biological female, and it's really not a problem. 
the dysphoria piece is the anguish that comes with feeling this disassociation with your body, all right? So just so we're clear on our terms. And then transgender is then the state or condition of identifying or expressing a gender identity that does not match a person's genetic sex, okay? Uh, so that's when you actually transition. Transitioning can take on a few different phases. A trans woman, if you, uh, this gets confusing, um, and you, you, we need to get this straight, because sometimes you're reading a news story, and it'll say a trans man, trans woman, you're like, wait, was that, hold on, and you, you have to kind of stop and think. So just remember, if you see trans in front of woman or man, it's speaking to identity, not biology, all right? Just remember that. So a trans woman is a biological male identifying, presenting as a female, a trans man, then, is a biological female identifying as a male, okay? So it goes with the identity, not with the biology, uh, just to keep, our, keep it straight. There was a story, I've read a bunch of these over the last uh, few weeks, but there was a story about an MMA fighter. Uh, some of you guys may have seen this um, over the last uh, couple of days, and there was this challenge issued. This biological male issued this challenge. Any trans, any trans man that wants to, to fight me, they can. And, and so I was reading this story, and I kept like having to keep it straight in my mind, like which one's the biological male, which one's the biological female. There are three stages of transitioning. So when somebody says they have transitioned, number one, and this is the most common, vastly most common, is identifying or presenting as a female or male, respectively. So you are a biological male and you start to identify as a female just means step one would be you start presenting as that. You start to ask people to use the pronouns associated with your new identity. You start to wear dresses. Maybe if you're a biological male, you start to dress in that way, or a female, um, maybe you start to wear suits, you cut your hair in a more, what's typically, again, what's culturally defined as masculine and feminine, which is an interesting conversation uh, that we'll get into. So you start to do the things that culture defines as gender specific, all right? So you start identifying and presenting, that's the vast majority. There's a hormonal change that you can, you can begin to take. And this is really, really, really interesting and problematic because you can't change chromosomes and you can't change body structure, right? And this is one of the issues when you get into things like athletics. Um, you can't change lung capacity. Um, this is one of the issues. Uh, Riley Gaines, she's the girl. She finished second to Leah Thomas at one of the big swimming competitions, and she's kind of used that platform to speak out now on a lot of this issue related to Title IX, which is the Women's Sports Protection Clause uh, from the NCAA. That was passed, I forget the year, but years ago. And so she's speaking out against that. I was listening to an interview that she did, and she, she as a swimmer, she said the, the male's throat is typically, on average, 40% larger than a female's, which is a really helpful advantage when you're gasping for air um, as a swimmer. My daughter's a swimmer. Uh, she understands uh, that trying to do that. I was talking to my brother, um, and he was, we were talking about swimming, and he's not a swimmer at all, doesn't understand swimming. He said, swimming's kind of like going for a jog, and somebody's trying to drown you. <laughs> I said, well, my... Kate would have something to say to you about that, but I'm not a swimmer either, but uh, this swimming has actually become one of the battlegrounds for this because it's one of the places where the biological advantage of the biological male is so clear and obvious with muscle skeletal structure, lung capacity, throats, the whole deal. Um, it's, it's just 
pretty, pretty clear. Okay, we'll get into that. Uh, so identifying presenting hormonal, and where I was going with that is you're, you, as a, as a female, you can t start to take estrogen blockers or testosterone, probably in combination, and then as a male, you start to suppress testosterone, which is, um, but it doesn't completely eliminate that advantage once you've been through puberty, and that's one of the issues. And the IOC is dealing with this, and all, all the sports organizations are starting to deal with this. Um, and we'll talk more about that. And then the last step is actual surgical transition. Um, euphemistically, it's referred to as top surgery and bottom surgery, and that means exactly what you would think it would mean. And one of the battlegrounds here has become these puberty blockers that they're starting to give prepubescent girls, so girls that have not been through puberty, and those who want to identify as a boy specifically. Um, Abigail Schreier wrote a whole book on this called Irreversible Damage. It is, it is a hard read. Um, it's hard to read it, but if you're really interested in this and really interested in, in seeing the damage, um, I would encourage you to pick it up. And it's, uh, it's a tough one uh, just because of the, the human carnage um, that's happening uh, to our young girls. And it's really, really incredible. So the surgical changes where they actually block puberty and begin to form male organs or female organs, as it were, um, in young ones who are wanting to be the opposite gender. All right, so that is, those are the three stages of transitioning. So when somebody says that they have transitioned or are transitioning, that's actually kind of a nondescript term. And so you would really have to know a little bit more information to know what they actually mean by that. Typically, they just mean the top layer. They're identifying or presenting, um, and, and they, don't act, they have not actually been through the other steps. Hormonal would be second, surgical would be third. That was one of the issues with Leah Thomas. Um, Leah Thomas has not had any corrective surgery, gender um, reassignment surgery, as it used to be called. Now it's what gender confirming surgery, um, I believe is, is what it's called. Um, now, assuming the identity comes from the individual, not the biology, which is what we'll get into a little bit more. All right, any questions on terms, general categories? Remember rules, we're gonna all be sweet and kind and nice. Any, any questions, confusion, is that clear enough, I think? Okay. Yes. Very small. Um, yeah, there's a, as far as the trans. Um, yeah, thanks. Uh, based, what, what's the percentage of the population? You're asking about transgender specifically. Uh, yeah, so this is from Andrew Walker. Uh, how common is transgenderism? Exact numbers are difficult to nail down. Williams Institute, University of California, estimates that 0.06 of the U.S. population, or about uh, 1.4 million people. Um, so it's about half, a little over half of a percent of the population um, is in the trans movement. And so, you know, I don't know exactly how those numbers break down underneath that as far as the transitioning, um, how many are just presenting in a, in a way that's not consistent versus how many are doing hormone therapy versus the actual surgical corrections. Yep. Yeah, I have those stats not on me. I'll, I'll have to pull those up. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting, it's, it's really an interesting study. I'm trying to remember where I read about all that. 
I think it's in Preston Sprinkled, Sprinkles book called Embodied. Um, I'll, look, I'll look that up for you. So the vast majority, uh, speaking generalities, and I'll come back and give you exact stats later, but the vast majority of people who are experiencing gender dysphoria is between the ages of 13 and 17, which of course is when you're going through puberty. Um, 80% of the time, gender dysphoria resolves itself after puberty. So the worst thing in the world that you can do, I'm not even talking, aside from biblically, and we'll get into the biblical issue, I'm just talking strictly from a, how do we make this person better in dealing with dysphoria? Remember, dysphoria is this sense of deep angst and um, turmoil. How do you make this better for somebody statistically? You let them go through puberty. That's the best thing that you can do. And so that's why I think this, these experience, uh, you know, blocking puberty before it happens is so detrimental. And I, I haven't even talked about the Bible yet. I'm just talking strictly from a help people perspective. It's not the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's right. That's right. They do. And that's right. That's right. So the, the issue gets put to a parent. Um, do you want your child dead or do you want them to be the other gender? Um, that is a false, false binary. <laughs> um, that is not, those are not the options. Um, and statistically, this is interesting. There's been studies done on this now. These people who experience the gender dysphoria, even post-puberty, they're not better off. Suicide rates are actually aren't better. Um, they, it's a problem. Like, they have a deep psychological, emotional problem. Um, there's a deep sense of longing, and, and it's an issue that they need help, um, and, and they, need, they need serious help. Uh, to, to work through that. So statistically, that's not even true. Um, and that's coming out more and more now. Um, I don't have the stats on me um, at the moment, but I would just say they need to look really carefully into is that actually the case? Um, because it, it's not. Um, it's really not. Yep. They're, going, they're shooting up like a rocket. Um, they're shooting up fast. Very fast. Because remember... Welcome back to Genderland. We're creating this, all right? We're creating it. And so you'll, you'll hear the term, if you start reading a little bit on this, you'll hear the term social contagion. And this is sort of a social contagion. It's, it's brave, it's cool, it's the thing to do. And so we're promoting this as a value now. And so, of course, of course, the, the kids are going to want to do this because they get, they get the big, you know, attaboy when you, when you do, um, or girl, respectively. So, all right, um, I want, to, I want to move along. Uh, last comment I'll make on this, and I think it's kind of telling and interesting. You still need the binary to be trans, right? Um, in order to identify as a male or a female, you need some notion of male and female. Um, and so this whole, and, and we'll get into sort of the trans answer to that um, in just a moment because now we're, it's not a binary anymore, and I understand that. But for the most part, what you, what you get is, 
is uh, there, it's, a, it's still a binary conversation. Um, you're just wanting to be one or the other, which is interesting to me. Okay, so let's talk about this issue. Uh, why can't Christians just get over it? Um, we've done some definitions, being human, being gendered, being married. Um, why is this such a big deal to us? So being human, now we're going to take this in two parts. As I mentioned, we're going to talk about being human according to the culture and then according to the Bible. And this is really a fundamental question. Uh, what does it actually mean to be a human? And I think it's one of those questions that I think we all have a sense of what it means to be human. We all are ones, so we have a sense of that. But if you really had to define, what does it mean? What sets us apart from the rest of the animal world? Um, you're, just a, you're just a mammal with a four-chambered heart, and you just live, and you eat, and, and you have opposable thumbs, which is super helpful, um, and language. Uh, so that, wh- other than that, um, biologically, we're really not all that different. Not all that different. There's some studies of the, of the brain and, uh, you know, the gray matter and what helps us to process and think. There's all kinds of studies done on that and still coming out. Um, we do have very complex brains, but we're not the only animals on planet Earth that has this complexity uh, of what we are. So what are we and why it matters or doesn't? So according to the culture, I want to pull up an, an oldie but a goodie. This is Carl Sagan. Many of you are familiar with Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan said, the nitrogen in our DNA, the calcium in our teeth, the iron in our blood, the carbon in our apple pies were made in the interiors of collapsing stars. We are made of star stuff. So that's what you are. Um, biologically, you are a, you're a sack of star stuff. And, and Sagan, being a materialist, he, he believed this. That, so why do you do what you do? Why do you make the decisions that you make? Why do you think the thoughts that you think right now? You're only doing those things because biologically, there's just a series of things happening in your brains. And you medical people could probably explain this much better than me, but you're taking an external stimuli, something's happening in your brain, you're firing synapses, your little synapses are firing, sending you know, sensors all to your body. I was walking around my house yesterday, and I was doing something, wasn't paying attention, and I kicked the coffee table. And it's so interesting to me, because I've been thinking about some of this stuff. Don't you hate that half second before you're like, that's about to hurt? <laughs> it's amazing. It took a minute, though. Not a minute, but it's, it just takes a, there's this little hesitation of, like, ow, goodness. And then you wait, like, ooh, that hurt. And it's so interesting, because your, your brain is picking up and there's a, there's a little bit of a time gap between, like, okay, that hurts. And so are we just that? Are we just responding? You say something, I say something, you say something, I say something. But it's almost robotic. Uh, we're just brains on a stick, and we're just processing data information. How do you make sense of things like meaning and purpose and love? Um, how do you make sense of any of that? So that's the materialist worldview. Sagan goes on to say, and I appreciated this quote as well, we humans are like a newborn baby left on a doorstep with no note explaining who it is. So that's what we are as humans. We're just sort of in this cosmos floating around trying to figure it out for ourselves. We're no more than, you know, an animal, maybe a deer that you would capture in one area, you drop it off into another region and they just hop off the trailer like, hey, new place, you know, just wandering around the earth trying to figure it out. And so is that what we are? Is that really what we are? 
And I think when you, when you push on the materialist perspective and worldview, I don't think you can say much more than that. I think all of them recognize things like human values and uh, universal human values and rights and consent and all of these things. But why? Why? And that's, that to me is a really strong argument for the existence of God and then ultimately gets us to Christ. So what's a human if there is no God? What makes humans different from the rest of the animal kingdom? What's left to give meaning and value to life? And I've already brought these up, but I think it's worth asking the question. So according to the culture, and according to a strictly materialist perspective, um, we are star stuff. We're just, we're just sacks of random molecules and particles and atoms and whatever else makes us up. What does the Bible say? The Bible has a very, very different picture of what humans are. From the very earliest pages of scripture, you get a different idea completely. We're not just random. We're not just here. We are said to be image bearers. This is a very important idea and concept. It's kind of hard to define, and there's a lot of pieces and parts to this, and we'll bounce off of that in a few different places and ways over the next few weeks. But we're image bearers of God, and I I think there's a lot you could say about this. You could say things like, what makes someone in the image of God? You could talk about rational capacity. We have the ability to reason, to think. We have a sense of morality. I think that's part of it. We're creative. Uh, We have creative ability, like God does in creating. We have dominion. We have responsibility over God's earth. The problem, though, if you only talk about the image of God in terms of ability, what do you do with someone who doesn't have that ability? Maybe they're born with some severe, um, some some severe abnormality that causes them to be to to not have cognitive ability uh, to think and to reason. Um, maybe they're, maybe you lose that at the end of life. Um, maybe your, your, your mind starts to slip away and you can't, you can't think and reason anymore. Are you less than an image bearer um, of God? And so, yes, I think all of those pieces and parts are part of what it means to be made in God's image, but I think there has to be more than that. Being human is to be in the image of God. And I think we have to say that. Um, and that protects us from mental incapacity, those who would devalue those with mental incapacity. It also protects us with life at the earliest stages and life at the latest stages. And so we need a universal idea of the image of God that covers every possible scenario of human. And I think that's what God's giving us here. So we are image bearers. And we'll read these texts because they're they're really helpful, important uh, for us to get our arms around. So this is Genesis 1, 26 and 27. So important. 126, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So this is the image and likeness of God. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so here immediately you see this idea of image and you see the idea of male and female. Now, Genesis tells two different stories. I should say that differently. I don't think it's two different stories. It gives us two perspectives on the same story, the creation event. In Genesis 2 then, go to verse 9. He says, and out of the ground, 
the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the Garden of Eden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then a river flowed out of Eden. Uh, We're going to jump down to uh, verse 14. And the name of the third river was Tigris, flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it, lest you surely die. And then we have the creation of woman. So it was back in verse uh, 7, we have the formation of man. And then in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called them, the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, the man, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken out of the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so we we see this um, immediately. And there's a lot you could say about the Genesis stories here. We won't dig too deep into that. But what we see is immediately there is a quality male and female. He created them both in the image of God, equally in the image of God. And there's distinction in chapter two, equality yet distinction. So what is man? According to the Bible, we are image bearers and we are embodied. We have normal human bodies and it's good for us to be embodied. Greg Allison said it this way in his book called Embodied. God's design for us is that we are embodied human beings. Embodiment is the proper state of human existence. And so this is pushing back against some who would say, the real you is just trapped inside this earth suit that you just have to like carry around for a little while. But that's not really important. And that leads to some of the problems that you see like in the Corinthian church because they were arguing, hey, I can do whatever I want with my body we'll get into this next week, my body is just my body. The real me is inside of me. So this is sort of just a cage to hold me in. And Allison is arguing, no, you are your body. This is you. And one day you get an upgrade. You get to fix this body so it doesn't hurt and it's fitted for eternity. But the proper state of human existence is to be embodied. Psalm 8. Let's go to that one just for a moment. I want you to see this talking about what does the Bible say about being human. Um, Psalm 8, this is a fantastic psalm. It doesn't speak in specific terms about the image of God, but a lot of the same uh, language comes through. So this is a psalm that starts just like it ends. Verse 1 and verse 9 are identical. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. Sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So the biblical perspective is man 
has responsibility over God's creation. And you'll notice in verse 7, the sheep and oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea. You see the progression? We're moving away from the house. That's kind of how it works. So sheep and oxen, you can, you can fence those in. You can sort of domesticate them to some degree. The beast of the field, think of like a deer. A little bit, you know, they're a little bit wary of you. So there's a little bit of distance there. And then uh, the birds of the heavens, those are kind of hard to get your hands on, especially like pre-shotgun days. Kind of hard to grab one of those things. And so they're a little bit more distant, but the author says, if you can get your hands on them, they're yours. You, you can use them for your purposes. And then the fish of the sea, which again, you know, in going in, now into the water prior to modern fishing equipment, and we're going to talk about fishing today in the sermon. Isn't that great? It's perfect. So the fish of the sea are a little bit more difficult to get. And then whatever passes along the depths of the sea. Now, in the Hebrew mind, the sea was this vast, unknown chaos, and so the depths of the sea, they don't even know what's out there. Pre-scuba equipment, we still don't, right? Uh, there's still parts of the sea that we can't. We don't, you know, we're finding new creatures down there. Pretty amazing. And so the, the progression is from the animals that are easy to maintain and to tame, and then the ones that are the most difficult, they're all yours. God did not give this commission to anything else, with apologies to Planet of the Apes. Didn't... didn't Nobody else um, has this responsibility. And so this, this becomes a big part of what it means to be human. So we're image bearers. We're embodied. We have physical bodies. Bodies are good. Um, bodies are good. It's good to be embodied. It's the proper state of human existence. And we're gendered. Um, and so from the very beginning, we see that we are gendered. Responsible agents. And then, of course, we are fallen as well. I think it's a mistake for us. A lot of times when we talk about the nature of humanity, we want to start with the fall. Um, what's human, what are humans like? Oh, they're terrible. And I understand the fall. I understand sin nature. I get it. I am one. Um, I live in this world too. But I think we're starting in the wrong spot. We're starting in the wrong spot when we, when we just immediately jump to sin and we're terrible things. Um, we need to start with the dignity that God has created us with. That's why the fall is such a tragedy, because we didn't live up to what God expected and gave Adam and Eve to do. So we are fallen, and that's an important part of this conversation, but it's not the only part, and that's what we have to get in our minds. All right, let's move along. So let's talk about this gendered idea. So I mentioned before, there was a time when gender and biological sex were used interchangeably, not anymore. Uh, the term gender is actually relatively new in the last 60, 70 years uh, to use that idea and term. It's a, it's a fairly new thing. And there's a lot of different contributing factors. Different people have different takes on how we got here. I think they're all probably right. There were a number of streams that have kind of converged to create this thing that we have now. So how did we get here? Carl Truman's book, um, Strange New World, which is the... It's the uh, mortals version of his book, The Rise and Fall of the Modern Self, which is a tome. Um, so Strange New World is the, is the smaller version. And he, he plots it in basically three movements. So here's what's happened. There's been this idea of the rise of the self. And so all of a sudden now, the self is everything. What's right or wrong? Determined by the self, the me. And we're not using self as Truman says in the book, in the normal commonsensical sort of way, we're using it as a metric for determining right and wrong. 
So what's right or what's wrong? Well, my truth, your truth, you hear the vocabulary all the time, right? Um, so there's just been this rise of the self, and what Truman does is he shows historically this didn't just fall out of nowhere. Um, it's actually been pretty, it's been coming for a long time, all right? So we have the rise of the self, and then we have the sexualization of the self, and this is stemming back from Freud and others, um, and so your, your identity becomes tied to your sexual, sexuality and your sexual identity. And then you have the politicization of the sexuality. And so now you take these three and you end up with the movement that we have today. All right? But it starts with this rise of the self. And I think this is really, really significant and important. We'll get into this our last or third week, talking a little bit about education, kids, that sort of thing. You see it in college recruiting? Um, used to. The institution was seen as formative. Why would you send a kid to an institution? Well, you send a kid to an institution so that they can go be a responsible, good citizen one day, right? That's kind of why they were set up. Um, here's the things you need to know so that you can be a productive member of society. And the institution was meant to be the crucible that formed you into the type of person to go into the world and contribute, just on a very easy, secular level. We can understand that. But now, the institution, their job is to platform you to be the best you. So come to my institution, and here's how I'll create this thing for you. You're seeing it in sports with the NIL, the rise of the NIL, uh, name, image, and likeness. And so why would I come play football at your school? Well, you can make a lot of money and you can promote your brand and we'll help you, you know, it, we, and, and you can get to the next level. And so it's kind of changed. It's no longer the name, you know, on the front of the jersey. It's on the back of the jersey. That's what it's all about. And so this rise of the self, um, and I think, it's, I think it's happening in all sorts of areas. All right, so Truman makes that point. Another contributing factor, we've talked about this before, and if you've known Adam for more than like six months, you've probably heard him talk about uh, this whole idea, this fact value, this upper story, lower story uh, type of division. This was popularized by Francis Schaeffer, who talked about the stories of a house and how we've divided out now the way that we think. Others have grabbed Schaefer's thought and pulled it forward, like Nancy Piercy. I'll talk about her. That's the other book that I mentioned, Love Thy Body. So he says, we think differently now than we used to. We divide the world basically into facts and values. A fact is something that's verifiable by science, empirical data, and evidence. A value is more or less an opinion. And the question is, what goes in which category? All right? So if I said, um, here in Florida, it's in January, and I walk outside and I say, it's cold outside. All right? That's a, that's a value judgment. If I tell my friend that lives in Nebraska, it's cold outside this morning, he would probably laugh at me. Because cold to me means anything under like 50. That's cold. All right? That's cold, y'all. So if I say it's 47, um, it's cold. Uh, he would laugh at me and say, it's negative 10. That's cold, all right? So it's a, it's a value judgment. But if I went outside and said, it's 47 degrees today, that's a fact, all right? So you see the difference, facts and values. That's how we sort of think. So pulling that forward, Piercy has used this division of thinking, and I'm gonna show you how this relates in just a moment. So she's written a number of books that applies this fact-value division in thinking. Uh, Total Truth, she's applying it to the idea of of education, Saving Leonardo, it's art, Love Thy Body, which is the one we're talking about. She's talking about anthropology, study of humanity, and then Finding Truth, she's applying it to apologetic and evangelism. So all of them are helpful in their own right, but she's, she's basically doing the same thing in each book. Uh, she's taking this fact-value division and, and showing how that relates to the culture. So here's how it works. Fact-value division, 
Science goes on the bottom because it's verifiable. You can measure the temperature, you can measure particles and such. You can't measure God. Has anybody ever seen God? Has anybody measured God? Can you capture God in a box? Can you, can you dissect God in a lab? Like, well, no. So that becomes, that's just a value then that you hold to. Good for you. I'm glad you have your God. I have something else that makes me really happy. You have Jesus. He gives you peace. I do yoga. What's the difference, right? And so it's then, there's no longer any truth to the claim that goes up top. It's just what's important to you. Um, You like onions? I don't, all right? It's just a value. It's just a moral decision. And so it doesn't matter. Then we start to apply it in other arenas. So then you have this division of sex and gender, all right? Your sexuality goes on the bottom, biologically what you are. Your gender goes on the top. And so we have this division that starts to form up, which we were talking about earlier. It also gets applied, this is not our point today, but it gets applied in the issue of human. What makes a human a human? Well, it no longer matters if they're a human, are they a person? And so that's the division. Because back in the day, 70s, maybe the 80s, you heard this argument, many of you, on the abortion conversation, it's just a clump of cells, it doesn't matter. You don't hear that much anymore because everybody knows that's a human. Left up to natural processes, it will develop into a fully functioning adult without interruption and provided all the necessary pieces are in place for development to happen. So nobody's arguing it's not a human anymore. If you found the smallest embryo on Mars, what would you call it? You call it a human. It's a human, but it's not a person yet. What do you have to do to be a person? Well, it has to do with self-consciousness, it has to do with pain awareness, it has to do with all sorts of different metrics, um, self-awareness of some sort. And so you, put, you, you start to divide these things out, and that's what Piercy's doing. So the gender and sex thing, you no longer have to identify with your biology. Um, now you can be whatever you want. And that leads to this, complete confusion. That's the most horrifying image I found um, looking through all of this. But I think it captures somewhat of the angst that a lot of our kids are feeling these days. They're completely confused, completely confused, because we're giving them the option to be confused. Abigail Favalli said it this way. Now unmoored from the body altogether, gender is defined by the very cultural stereotypes that feminism sought to undo. So interesting. In other words, when a girl recognizes that she does not fit the stereotypes of girlhood, she is now invited to question her sex rather than the stereotype. Isn't that interesting? And so if you are a girl and you don't love all the girly, girly things, or you're a boy and you don't love, you know, eating copious amounts of red meat and smell of gunpowder, it's like, well, the, the issue now is well, you must not be a boy then, because that's what boys do. No, 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 we need to question the stereotype, not your gender, all right? And that's the problem. But we've invited these young people, and adults as well, we've invited them to now question their gender rather than to question the stereotype. Push back on the stereotypes. We need to push back on the stereotypes. I think it's unfortunate that we define uh, masculinity and femininity in such sort of, like broad, broad brush, you know, sort of ways that that really a lot of times aren't helpful and don't fit some people. And so that's the problem. I'll leave you with this. This is one of my favorite things that I've read 
on all of this. This is also from Abigail Favalli. This is where I, I, I tabbed it, the gender land. She says this. This is an excellent piece of writing here. Alice in Genderland, what, pray, are you? asked the caterpillar. I'm a woman. Oh, are you? Yes, at least, I paused suddenly, unsure. I think so. Caterpillar, do you feel like a woman? I'm not sure, I say. What does it mean to feel like a woman? To feel like a woman is to be a woman, pronounces the caterpillar, taking a long drag from his hookah. But what is a woman? Someone who feels like a woman. But what does it mean to feel like a woman if being a woman is defined as feeling like a woman? Hence the circle. Transphobe, puffs the caterpillar. And this is what ends up happening. You get caught in this endless loop. What does it mean to be a woman? Well, it means to feel like a woman. What's it mean to feel like a woman? It means to be a woman. There's nothing objective about that because we're trapped in the upper story where the self is completely defining reality on this issue. When gender is separated from biology, it leads to limitless possibilities for gender identity. And so now we're moving into this new realm, which is no longer binary. It's no longer binary. Um, Now this is a complete spectrum of gender, and that's what you're going to begin to see more and more of. Oh, goodness. I'm on slide 27 of 44, just so you know. (laughs) And this is week one. And I hardly even took comments, so I can't even blame it on you this time. But for the sake of equipping our integrity and finishing on time, um, I'm going to stop there. Uh, any, any final comments or thoughts? Um, I want to move into, so we'll pick up next week. I want to I talk a little bit more about this gender, and I want to talk about the fluidity um, issue as far as gender goes. Yep. Right. Self. Yeah, this, yeah, yeah, self-consciousness. One guy, a commentator on Ecclesiastes, he says, man is alone amongst God's creatures as a malcontent. <laughs> kind of interesting, right? <laughs> we're the only ones that are, it, like, we go, out, we go out and we're like, how do I do this faster, easier, better? Like, we're the, we're the ones that are malcontents. Um, we, we, and no, no, probably not. Probably not. But you wouldn't have to, even, uh, even things like reproduction are not necessarily tied to gender. Um, and that, that becomes an interesting conversation as well. Just because people aren't used to this vocabulary yet, and we don't need to be, it's, it's abnormal, um, it's, it's against nature, uh, which will be my argument later, but yeah. Good. One final comment. Yep. I'm going to have to pull up hard numbers on that. I did read quite a bit on that, but I don't want to quote stats because I'm probably going to get them wrong. Um, so my, my recollection of that is it's negligible as far as the suicide rates of those who transition versus not. Um, it's, it's negligible difference. Yeah. Yes. By treating the gender, yes, correct. Yes. 
Yeah, totally, totally agree. Um, yeah, and so what we're trying to do is, and, and that's, that's sort of what I was trying to say earlier, is there, there are deep, deep problems here that need to be dealt with at a different level other than, than identifying or hormonal or even surgical change. Um, it's not going to fix it. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's like the, um, it's the monastery argument. It's like, well, what's the problem with the monastery? Yeah, we're we're going to go out and we're going to create this place with no sin. It's like, well, you went. That's the problem. <laughs> like, you took it with you. And so the problem, the problem I'm arguing is, is deep within, um, and it's, it's not something that uh, any amount of external changes to the body is going to actually change. All right, we're going to stop there, um, and uh, we'll pick it up next week. We'll talk more about gender and then get into some of these other topics as well. Let me pray for us. Lord, thanks for some time that we can spend together talking about these issues. They're very important. Some of them.